this is not something that is going to be dealt with in a moment of fantastic devotion where we have now determined that we're going to take up our cross and we'll follow Jesus and we make a note in our journal that on such and such a day in such and such a month I became a cross-carrying disciple no actually what Jesus says in nine is take up your cross every day this is not some silly thing like denying yourself candy or whatever else it is it's an invitation just to come and die to yourself I don't know about you but I find that very hard Today on the Songtime broadcast, we'll continue our study with Dr. Alistair Begg as we're talking about the cost of discipleship and Jesus' words that he's repeated now several times to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow him. Stay tuned for that. But first, we'll be hearing from Greg Gilbert once again as we talk about uh, what it truly means to hide God's word in our heart and understand how it connects from Genesis to Revelation. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. If you've ever sat down to read through the Bible and you find yourself in the less visited portions of Scripture, we don't often preach through or we don't often hear from them. Uh, when you get to those passages and you start to under, try to scratch your head and say, where does this fit within the greater story of the Bible? It, it's very easy for us to fall into this thinking that the Bible is really just a whole bunch of uh, disconnected stories, disconnected uh, genres, and and really they don't play well well with each other. They they're all have their segments. It's like having a whole bunch of different books on the shelf and organizing them uh, based on themes seems utterly impossible. But that's not the case. The truth is we have one author of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation, and all of the themes are actually interconnected. In fact, Jesus in his ministry here in the Gospel of Luke is showing how all of Scripture is pointing to him, how all of the law and all of the prophets are ultimately pointing to Jesus. He used the Word of God when he preached, and and that's actually very significant to understanding how we move forward in our own teaching ministries. Well, we're joined once again by Greg Gilbert, who's written a book that will help us in this regard. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible, and it's the subtitle here is How to Read and Understand God's Word. And Greg, you talk about the themes of the Bible. And for our listeners who have ever struggled to make sense of how the Bible is interconnected, uh, explain to us what you mean there by the themes, especially when it comes to not just the New Testament themes we understand, but how the Old Testament ties into them as well. Yeah, so the meat of the Epic Story book is is tracing out, I think, four or five different themes that run through the entire scriptures. So uh, the first one, I think, is God's presence. You know, and you as you read the story, you can see how the theme of of presence or not mm-hmm. uh, it is played out. You know, throughout the through, throughout the story of the Bible, you know, you start with Adam and Eve being in the presence of God, walking in the cool of the of the day with with God. Then they're cast out of God's presence. Then with Israel, there's this kind of mediated, dangerous presence of of God, where He's there, but man, it's dangerous, right? And if you get something wrong, fire comes out and nails you. Um, and then, and then ultimately you get, you get presence with God with and through Jesus. And then finally, you know, they shall see his face in revelation. So there's this whole story of mankind losing and then regaining through Jesus being in the presence of God. And, and the more you can just kind of know that that's, that that theme is there, the more you'll see it in other places as you read the story and be like, oh, that's that theme of presence. And it, 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 uh, it's beautiful. Hmm. Kingship is another one that runs from start to finish. 
I think sacrifice atonement is is another one that I that I talk about in there. Yeah, uh, can't remember all of them, but yeah, I think so. Of the themes, you know, covenant something we we can understand, and yeah, certainly absolutely. sacrifice we understand the idea of the blood of Christ. I think the one that is hardest for maybe Westerners to to wrap our mind around is this idea of king and kingdom. Uh, we yeah. think of salvation as something that is uh, you know ours here, but. Uh, the kingdom of God, uh, that is a theme that even Jesus says, you know, seek first the yeah. kingdom of God. That's so hard, I think, for Westerners uh, or even Western readers of the Bible to, to comprehend. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a complicated thing. And to make it worse, uh, it's it's can be somewhat controversial as people kind of argue over the meaning mm-hmm. um, and all the rest. But essentially, the kingdom of God means the rule or the reign of God. Mm-hmm. Uh Typically in English, we think of the word kingdom as meaning a realm, like a piece of land that belongs to a king or whatever. It doesn't mean that. It means lorddom or dominion or rule or reign. Uh, and the way that story gets worked out through the Bible is is basically that uh, it was it was always in creation supposed to be a human that was mediating God's reign. Adam was given the shot. He failed. Everything goes into chaos. And then the whole story of the Old Testament from Noah to the patriarchs to uh, the kings themselves is this question, okay, well, if it wasn't Adam and it's not Noah and it's not Abraham, it's not this guy and this, who is it? Like, is this next king him? Maybe it's Solomon in all his glory. No, it turns out no. And the whole question becomes, who is this king that's going to reign? And of course, you know, that theme, like all the others, eventually, you know, comes to rest on Jesus of Nazareth as, you know, this is the king as, as Matthew fairly shouts in chapter one of his book. Mm. I think we, we have a hard time with that because salvation for us is is about us getting saved. You know, it's about us uh, having salvation, but that idea of lordship is very hard for, I think, the, the Western civilization. It's very difficult to wrap our minds around. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what, I mean, it's, it's Jesus's kingship and the, his creation of a people that throws us into conflict with the world mm-hmm. all the time. So, you know, it's, yeah, personal salvation is one thing, uh, but to be to be called together by a king as a people with a mission, uh, that's a threat to the world. We've been talking with Greg Gilbert about his book. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible, How to Read and Understand God's Word. As we seek to tie all of the themes of Scripture together and see a greater picture, a greater image of God, uh, when you understand these basic themes and principles of of reading the scriptures, it's like having a light turned on in the room. You can start to see everything and interconnected. You start pulling strings and seeing how they're all moving parts. It actually is a beautiful thing to have a few helps as you read the word of God to make sense of scripture and to enlighten the, the, the beauty and the glory of who God is in connecting the themes from thousands of years of writing from Genesis to Revelation, a great resource from Greg Gilbert. You can find out more information about his book, The Epic Story of the Bible, by giving us a call, 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. Well, today we're continuing our story with the story of Jesus as we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus' message to his followers is pretty strong. We find Jesus now, and as after uh, chapter 9, where Jesus turned his feet towards Jerusalem, he's on his way to uh, the cross. He knows where he's headed. He knows what he's about to do. 
And he's calling his disciples to follow him. He's telling them, you have to come after me. You have to deny yourself. You have to, you have to hate your, your father and mother and your, your family. You have to deny all other relationships and give me your undivided devotion if you want to be my disciple and follow me. And with that, find the greatest reward in your life. Now, certainly that sounds like a very attractive offer, especially to his followers who are thinking about uh, joining Jesus in battle for Jerusalem, and they're going to be given prominent positions in his kingdom. That's, that's the frame of mind that the disciples had. They thought they were going to fight. And so when Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and follow me, what they were thinking is, we are going against Rome, and the consequences may leave us as outsiders, it may leave us as rebels, and they've seen people dying on crosses. They were purposely put outside of the city gates on the roads so that people would see, these are the people that you do not want to be like. Uh, the people that were dying on crosses were the rebels. They were the ones that, that Rome was saying, this is what happens when you come up against the Roman machine. We will crush you, we will humiliate you, and we will publicly display you to all of your followers that you are, that you have lost. So as disciples, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking they're going to be willing to die for Jesus. They're going to be willing to go to the cross, but Ultimately, that's not what Jesus was really saying. They missed the message, but in case we miss it, we want to be careful at how we hear, careful at how we listen. Here, Alistair Begg explains to us what it truly means to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Unless you're prepared to actually carry your own cross, verse 27, you can't be my disciple either. Now, his listeners would have been familiar, many of them, with the scene of a small detachment of Roman soldiers arriving in a village, uh, coming and beating on the door of a house, the sorry scenes as a family parted with the man of the home. The man was then given the crossbeam of the uh, place of his execution, which he was then to carry with him. And as he picked up his cross and went off with those soldiers, the people from the immediate locality would be looking at him and would be saying to one another, that man is on a one-way journey. He's not going to be coming back because he has actually picked up the implement of his own destruction. He is on his way to his death. When we study this in the reverse in 9 and 23 of, of Luke, we recognize then that this is an expression of self-denial. And in reading that verse, 9.23, and you can check it to make sure it's there, we discovered that this is not something that is going to be dealt with in a moment of fantastic devotion, in a great burst of enthusiasm, in a cathartic moment where we move from our sorry and miserable kind of discipleship into a whole new kind of discipleship where we have now determined that we're going to take up our cross and we'll follow Jesus. And we make a note in our journal that on such and such a day, in such and such a month, in such and such a year, I became a, a cross-carrying disciple. No, actually what Jesus says in 9 is, uh, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross every day. See, the cross-bearing of yesterday's gone. It's today. Maybe I had a great day yesterday, you know. Today's today. And the cross-bearing of today will give way to a new tomorrow, and tomorrow, Jesus said, I want you to take up your cross. This is not some silly thing like denying yourself candy or whatever else it is. It's an indication, it's an invitation just to come and die to yourself. I don't know about you, but I find that very hard. Thirdly, unless you're loyal to Jesus above everyone and everything else, you can't be his disciple. Unless you're prepared to take your cross, you cannot be his disciple. And then in verse 33, in the same way any of you who doesn't give up everything cannot be my disciple. 
Uh, we read this stuff and most of us are saying that pretty well clears out the whole building as far as I can make out as of right now. And that's what it's supposed to do, to shake us out of a kind of spurious, ineffectual form of Christianity that is frankly very unappealing to people who want to give their lives for something that counts, who want to make the dash between the dates mean something. The average young person is not really interested in getting caught up with a bunch of funny people singing strange songs because they've got a predilection for that kind of thing. And when he inquires, why do you do what you do? He just gets some sort of mealy-mouthed answer about Jesus is very important to me or, you know, Jesus is this or Jesus is that. And he says, you know, I don't know, really know that Jesus is very much to that person because I, I, I've seen him and I've listened to him. That's why Jesus speaks in these categorical terms. Unless you give up everything. Well, what does everything mean? What do I have to clean out of my room, Mom? Everything. What do you mean by everything? I mean everything by everything. Jesus, what do you mean everything? He said, I mean everything. Your money, your stuff, your family, everything that your heart clings to that gives you significance and gives you security. He said, I want you to give all that up. In fact, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Now, that actually may mean the very literal expression of this, as it has in some people's lives. For example, I've told you often of the story of C.T. Studd, whose father was uh, significantly wealthy and who himself was a Cambridge graduate and played cricket for England. He was out of the, tr the top drawer of English society. When the call of God for him to move into world missions came, it stirred his heart so strongly in these terms that he determined that it wasn't going to be right for him to go off into the heart of Africa and simply be able to do so with this great bank balance that he had behind him because he said, if I retain that for myself, I'll never know whether I'm really trusting God. And so as a result of that, he gave all of his money away, except for a little nest egg that he kept for his wife. Who to whom? He gave a little poem that she was supposed to say every morning in her devotions. And it went like this, Dear Lord Jesus, you are to me dearer than Charlie ever could be. Why? Because he wanted to disciple his wife into the truth of this, because he knew that one day she wouldn't have Charlie, but she would always have Christ. She then, in seeking to get serious about this devotion, finds out that he has retained money for her. She says, you mean you can trust God by relinquishing everything? And I can't give it all away. And so the remaining 100,000 pounds, which in today's money would be probably five or seven million pounds, 10 or 11 million dollars, he gives to General Booth of the Salvation Army. He took that pretty seriously, wouldn't you say? Now, not everybody did that. Because again, what is Jesus saying here? Incidentally, when they asked Booth, uh, what his significance was and why it was he felt that uh, the Salvation Army had been so singularly blessed under his leadership. You know what he said? Jesus Christ has all of me. Jesus Christ has all of me. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. Unless I have all of you, you can't be my disciple. I'm not playing second fiddle to your wife. I'm not playing second fiddle to your job. I'm not playing second fiddle to your family. See how radical this is? But this is a cause that people would die for, you see. Geldenhoys in his commentary, very, very helpfully says this, and I'm going to read it for want of time, commentating on this great statement by Jesus in the same way any of you who does not give up everything, says Geldenhoys, it does not mean that a man must sell all his possessions or give all his money away or desert his dear ones and become a hermit or beggar or wanderer, but it does mean that he must give Christ total control over his whole life with everything that he is and all that he possesses. He places all at Christ's disposal that he might be inwardly free from worldly-mindedness 
covetousness and selfishness. Someone asked me recently how to make sense of this statement of Jesus telling his disciples that we are called to take up our cross daily and follow him. And uh, we see that as bearing the, the consequences for our sin because we're looking at it on this side of the cross where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So we often think that what, what Jesus is saying here is that we have to pay the price for our sin daily in order to, to help Jesus in some way. Well, that is not the implication here. We have to understand what Jesus is saying, especially to the disciples before the cross, on his way to the cross, telling them that they are going to have to take up the cross daily and follow him. What he's ultimately saying there is that they are going to have to deny themselves. They are going to have to give their full devotion to Jesus Christ. And it fits here perfectly within the themes and the stories that we're already seeing. And for instance, last week, the story of Mary and Martha. Mary has found the better portion that will not be taken from her. The thing that truly matters is that she is connected to Jesus. Earlier in that the same passage there in Luke chapter 10, we saw that the disciples had come back after uh, casting out demons, and they were very excited. They were overjoyed and telling Jesus, uh, even the demons hear our voice and are afraid. And Jesus says, don't, don't be joyful about that, but take joy in the fact that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing that we ought to hold in its proper high regard, the thing that truly matters most. And this is the thing, that Jesus went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to go to the cross. In fact, Jesus will tell his disciples, and in particular Peter, that he is about to do something that Peter cannot do. Peter would not be able to do. There's nothing that we can do to add to our own righteousness. There's, there's no amount of punishing ourselves that is going to give us a clean slate to be able to be presentable before God. But what he is saying is that we have to cling to Jesus because Jesus is our only hope. We have to have our full devotion to him. We have to be completely in Jesus in order to be presentable before God. We're not talking about a grading curve here. We're not talking about you do your best and then Jesus will get you the rest of the way. That is not the case here. Jesus is saying the only way that you can be presentable to the Father, the judge of the universe, is if you are in Christ. And to be in Christ means to cling to him and to cling to the cross. That was what it means to take up a cross daily and follow him, to deny ourselves and deny our own righteousness and to find the righteousness of Christ that covers our sin. I hope that this encourages you, and if it has, I hope that you'll let us know. Write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or you can look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow as we continue to weigh the cost of discipleship and find that it is far greater than the alternative. Not to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a disciple of the powers of darkness and to be a servant of the world. And to be a servant of the world and of sin costs incalculably more than to be a disciple of Jesus. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.